If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. and welcome to episode 31 of the Leading Learning Podcast. Just a couple quick notes here up front. First, if you're listening to this podcast, then you or others on your staff may be interested in Learning Technology Design, or LTD for short. This is a a learning experience designed specifically for professionals in the business of continuing education and professional development. It's a two-day event, and the goal is to really help attendees find new and better ways to engage learners and create lasting impact through the effective use of technology. We have put up most of the program so if you haven't checked out the site recently we really encourage you to take a look at ltd.leadinglearning.com Jeff and I are truly excited about the 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 sessions that we've put together we think we have a great range of topics and a great range of speakers and facilitators coming together we also want to thank Meridian Knowledge Solutions for being a sponsor of the Leading Learning webinars and as part of that package that makes them a sponsor for this podcast episode you can find out about upcoming webinars at tagoras.com webinars, and you can learn more about Meridian Knowledge Solutions at meridianks.com. Now, Jeff, for this episode, we're going back to the archives, and uh, this is uh, an interview that you did with Monisha Pashupathy. That's right. I actually did this interview back when I was writing Leading the Learning Revolution. And um, we actually, we hit a point this week where we're, we're very busy with LTD coming up and um, we needed to, to look for something to use in this week's podcast. And so we thought this was a great way to, A, you know, highlight some great content that uh, that we've actually put together in in the past. Uh, and that's, we, we wouldn't do this if it wasn't great content. Um, but then also we, you know, our last episode was on podcasting. We wanted to highlight, you know, that there are a lot of ways you can reuse content that you've developed in the past. Even content from a podcast can be reused for a podcast. Uh, so we wanted to uh, go back and access the the interview I did with Dr. Monisha Pashupathy. And like I said, it, in the first place, it's just great content. This was an interview I did while I was writing Leading the Learning Revolution. And Dr. Pashupathy is a psychology professor at the University of Utah. But the way that I came to know her was because she is the presenter for the teaching companies, or actually they're now called, I think, the Great Courses, Great Course on How We Learn. And I listened to that uh, several years ago at this point, um, listened to it and also viewed part of it. It's part of uh, the series that the Great Courses puts out that are you know lecture-driven by people who are great lecturers, who are masters of a body of content, but are also just very, very adept at, at teaching it, at being good presenters of it. And Monisha taught the How We Learn course, which really walked through you know, all aspects of learning from the ground up, not just adult learning, just the, the whole, just, you know, how humans learn in general. And so we were able to have a, a great conversation about that. And a couple of reasons I, I wanted to bring it up in addition to just the, the content itself, the content is extremely valuable. I think anybody listening to this podcast is gonna be interested in what Dr. Pashupathy has to say. But also because Monisha is part of the Great Course series, and we've talked about the Great Courses before on the Tagoras blog, they are just a real juggernaut in the market for adult lifelong learning. They've got a model where they go out and find people who are uh, acclaimed, just very good at 
delivering lectures, delivering content on on popular topics for their audience. And uh, Monisha was, you know, one of the people they selected for that. Uh, she is a very good teacher, a very good presenter in talking about, you know, how we learn. And she's also part of this business model. So she's been a subject matter expert who's participated in one of the the business models that's really gotten a lot of traction in the market for lifelong learning. And of course, as part of that, because this particular business model is lecture driven, we do also talk about the role of the lecture in, in lifelong learning. And lectures have come in for a lot of criticism in recent years. Um, and you know, I think with what she says, you can maybe get a little bit more perspective on the role that they can and should play in adult lifelong learning. So enough of me lecturing right now. Let's go ahead and dive into this archive interview with Dr. Monisha Pashupathy. with Monisha Pashupathy, who is an associate professor in developmental psychology at the University of Utah, and we are going to talk about how we learn today. Uh, thanks so much for, for taking the time to, to have a discussion, Monisha. Thank you for, for having me. You know, as I indicated in um, my or- original email reaching out to you, uh, I have actually listened and, and watched, I did a combination uh, of uh, the two actually, um, to your How We Learn course that you developed with uh, the, the teaching company, which I just thought was uh, fantastic, uh, just a, a great comprehensive uh, overview of learning. And um, I was wondering, just to, to start off with, uh, you know, w- w- was that a, a natural focus for you to, to put together a, a course in, in learning like that? Uh, was that something you'd already been focusing on, or did the teaching company come and, and, and scout you out for, for doing something like that? Um, it, was a, it was a little bit of both. I would say that um, the teaching company scouted me out um, when I was doing a research presentation, and my my area of research is is sort of in the intersection of memory and personality. So um, I had not previously taught courses on learning, um, but in the context of working with a teaching company, uh, they wanted me to develop this one, and we sort of went back and forth and ended up working together on a, a course about learning that would be um, distinct in terms of what they have in their catalog and would be doable for me in terms of what I what I know well and what I don't know well, uh, and would be interesting and useful, I think, for customers. So there were sort of three kind of three considerations at stake and what and what they wanted out of the collaboration. Great, and I. So it was a challenge. <laughs> okay, well, it was definitely one you rose too well, and I mean, obviously, you've got the you know the deep background in psychology. Uh, I know um, uh, you have a, a great focus on storytelling and memory and uh, things that, that certainly relate into the the whole area of learning. Um, and and I, I noticed you started out the course uh, in what I thought was a great way, talking about some of the myths uh, around learning. Um, so I wanted to ask you, you know, particularly with uh, respect to how adults learn, because that's that's really where I'm focusing most of uh, uh, my effort. Um, what do you think are some of the just fundamental misunderstandings that we have about how people learn? Um, I think one of the fundamental misunderstandings that, that we can have about learning as adults is that, uh, or one that really interests me is the idea that you know when you're learning. Mm. Um, and I think this one is interesting because that that myth or that sort of misunderstanding um, has a lot of implications. So one implication is that 
it means when I'm when I'm learning, I know that I'm learning, and it's a kind of uh, discrete activity, and it's taken out of the context of other activities. Um, and I think that the the reality is that virtually everything we do involves learning. Um, sometimes it's learning we're not even paying attention to. Sometimes it's really when you get in your car and you drive the same route that you always drive to your office building. Um, you are, in, in a sense, relearning and, and making those actions even more automated than they already were. So I, th- I found that a, a sort of fascinating piece of information to convey to an audience. You, you don't walk out of your house without learning something, right? whether you meant to or not. Right. No, exactly. Um and in related to to that particular point, because I I mean that's definitely a, a a point I take very much to heart. Um, I mean, how do you think living in a world now where we've got so much access to you know information, new ways to potentially be learning? You know, when when as you say, we may not really even be conscious that we're doing it. So we're, you know, we might be using Facebook, we might be on Twitter, or we might just be you know searching for something on Google or reading something on Wikipedia. I mean, we're, we're always in this mode now where we're processing information. I mean, how, how well prepared do you feel most people are to kind of learn effectively with, uh, you know, the, the, the world of information we now live in? I, I think there's two issues. We're too, so, so on the one hand, I, I sort of love the information age. I mean, I love that when we have a question at the dinner table, we can just look up the answer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't really know how I existed without Google and Wikipedia. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> so, so I do love it. But I think there's a couple, there are a couple dangerous pieces to that world. Um, one of those pieces is that we're not all that well equipped um, for one of the important tasks uh, for dealing with a flood of information. So if you want to learn from a flood of information, it's really important to be able to distinguish what information is good and what information is not good. Um, and there's sort of two things that make that really complicated. I think one is a systemic issue about the way that the Internet works, which is that we don't always get source information. We don't always get um, enough information to determine whether something we're being told is, is reliable, is well-validated, um, has a lot of evidence behind it. And I think it's very easy to look at current political debates, for example, even about um, the health care bill, the Obamacare um, initiative. If you look at uh, comments people make about the Obamacare legislation, there's clearly an awful lot of just misunderstanding of what the legislation entails. Um, And that's partly because there's a lot of information out there on the Internet and, and in the world that simply isn't accurate and we're not given enough information to check it ourselves, and we don't have time. Um, but I think a second thing lies in the way that we remember what we learn and where we learned it from. Um, so we're not as good at learning source information as we are at learning content, and what that leads to is the, the problem that you remember information that may be flawed or bad or inaccurate, and what you fail to remember is the kind of information that would help you discard that from your opinion. So I think that's one kind of problem with the information age. Um, It may mean that we need to think differently about how we teach uh, people from kindergarten through college and beyond um, because we aren't, I think, 
as yet preparing people for that kind of flood of information and for sorting their way through it. Um, I think another piece of it is that we may not, when you had to go to uh, uh, an encyclopedia and look something up, and when you had to do that physically, even if you had an encyclopedia set in your house and, and it was only a matter of going across the room, there's a very deliberate um, approach to that learning process. And so you know, I'm going now to look up something about um, Virgin and, uh, and the World War. And that also, I think, puts you in a frame of mind where you're going to think about accuracy and source um, and where you know you're engaged in learning. Um, I think the flood of information that we all kind of live in also makes that unconscious learning more um, more dangerous in some ways. There's a right. lot more that we can be unconsciously learning than simply uh, the way to get from point A to point B. Right. Um, which is, in relative terms, harmless. But when you're reading a Twitter feed and not really thinking about that as an act of learning, then you may be picking up all kinds of very tacit, non-conscious associations um, that can then affect your behavior and your decision-making and your and your thinking later on in ways that you might not have wanted to be effective. Definitely, definitely. I think uh, I think a tremendous amount of that goes on. Um, I mean, in the in the same vein, but but switching gears just a, a little bit. I mean, there, there's obviously all of this you know unstructured type learning that goes on out there, informal. Uh, where we may not be conscious, uh, but there are obviously other occasions, and, and this goes directly into the, the world of kind of lifelong learning, continuing education, professional development that I'm focused on, where people are right. saying, okay, I'm going to a class, I'm, I'm, I'm sitting in this uh, you know, seminar room or whatever it is, and I'm listening to this person in the front of the room, so I'm conscious, I'm here to learn. But you make a note uh, in your course, and, and I, I mean, I hear this all the time. It's kind of a, a rumble across the, um, the continuing education sector right now that lectures, um, you say, uh, although they are widely criticized, turn out to be efficient ways of helping people learn. Um, and I'm interested in that because I, I, I hear a lot of the criticism about lectures, you know, in those conscious learning experiences and a lot of lobbying for let's be much more interactive, let's, you know, have it be more self-directed in the classroom, let's get rid of lectures, basically. What what would you say in, in defense of lectures? Um, I think lectures are very organized and they're very structured. And those are good things. Um, good lectures can take people through an expert's thought process in a way that doesn't happen when when you're very interactive um, because being interactive is fun and it's engaging, but it also can derail a group into uh, tangential things and it means that non-experts are um, engaged in thought processes and non-experts don't think like experts. Um, so I think lectures have a lot to offer just at, at the core of what they are. Um, they are really organized, really structured, um, and digestible ways to get quite a bit of information in a relatively short time. Um, to do the same kind, to acquire the same level of learning from interactive models um, often will require considerably more time. Uh, it often takes considerably more expertise on the part of the teacher or the instructor because you have to know how to get a group of non-expert people from point A to point B. You have to kind of know where they typically 
uh, hit a hit a wall in their understanding, um, what kinds of misconceptions they bring to the table. So you have to be um, very skilled um, in addition to having a lot of skills at group facilitation and, and sort of keeping happy while at the same time showing them very gently the ways in which they need to change their, their way of thinking about a topic. And I think lectures are much more efficient um, in, in, in that sense uh, than other ways of learning. So I, the other thought I always have when people talk about let's, you know, let's be more interactive, um, I think that we may have lost the capacity to experience lectures as interactive um, historically maybe because I, I remember a really interesting experience I had in Germany where I went to a talk and it was given in German um, and my German wasn't terrific at the time so I, I had a hard time processing this lecture um, but what I noticed about it is that it was a very old-fashioned lecture. It was given by a professor from the former East um, who had been a before the wall had come down in the, in the former East block, and he spoke in fully articulated sentences for something like 40 minutes um, and sort of beautiful, erudite German. Uh, and what I think we don't experience anymore is that kind of lengthy oration um, and what that I, I suspect there was a time when we used to have better skills for listening um, and for feeling engaged with with lectures, and we may have we may be going too far right. <laughs> into interactivity in such a way that we're actually undermining people's skill at listening to lectures because it is to some extent something that we learn how to do, um, and, and I hate to see us unlearn that in this in favor of of um, New instructional methods, which have which have their own value, but but also have their own flaws. Right, right. Yeah, that that is interesting uh, that you you made the comment about the. Uh the German professor, because now that you say that, I can recall um, I, I had the opportunity to spend a, a fair amount of time in Russia, and and I think the the kind of intellectual tradition there and, and the the lecturer in the university is still very old school and, and a similar type of thing where you know they they value a good lecture um, and, and people are definitely prepared to sit there and, and listen um, to an expert and, and and engage in it in a different way than I, than I think we do now. Yeah. I mean, that being said, you know, I, I've, I've certainly sat in, um, you know, seminars at, uh, you know, say an association conference where, you know, you, you might be getting an expert um, uh, in his or her field to come in and talk about something, but they aren't necessarily a teacher. Nobody's ever really, you know, in, instructed them in, in how to stand up in front of a room and actually teach, though they know their subject very, very well, obviously. I mean, in that sort of situation, what I mean, what are the, the I don't know, two or three tips that you might give to somebody who has subject matter expertise, needs to stand up in front of a room of people and, and deliver, you know, in the most effective possible way? What are what are some things they should try to do? Mm, let me think. I mean, I think of a couple of things, and they depend a little bit on what kind of person that person right. is. Um, if you're very socially anxious. Mm-hmm. Um, I think then the tips I would give have to do with preparing. Um, and my general experience of talks like the ones you're, you have in mind here is that they often try to convey too many things. Um, so there's too much detail and there's insufficient attention to the main messages. 
that the person wants to convey. So I think if you're very if you're anxious and working hard beforehand to figure out what three things you wish people would remember after your forty minute speech. Um, because that's about what people are going to be able to take home um, for the long term. So three, the three key things, and then building from those three key things with examples or details from there, I think is very helpful for an audience. And the nice thing about that is you can do it ahead of time. Um, the thing I would say is for people who are not particularly anxious about standing up in front of an audience, and maybe this is, you know, a tiny percent of the population, uh, but people to people who aren't super anxious, um, I, I think the other thing that you can do is to try to track your audience a little bit, um, especially the front, the front few rows. You'll be able to see whether people are understanding something, and you can slow down. Um, at that point. So to actually look at the people you're talking to um, is, is the other thing. I think particularly novice public speakers sometimes are simply not looking at their audience um, or they're looking at people in the back who are not as good in terms of getting some signals of whether people understand what you're, do- what you're saying and whether people are engaged or interested. Um, and, and I think to some extent making eye contact with people in the audience also tends to pull them in a little bit. Um, and that changes the dynamic for you as a presenter because you're getting some you're getting some responses, you're getting people nodding. Um, so I think those are the two big ones because the, the common errors I see are droning on with no attention to the audience and trying to just cram way too much into right. one presentation. Right. Um, I, those are interesting too, because I think, um, I, yeah, I certainly know when I myself am presenting in a room, being able to get that eye contact and and and, and establish a rapport. And as you said, it usually happens in the first few rows, you know, that 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 you're doing that with, and it can make a huge difference. But we now live in this world where you know a lot of the teaching that's going on is um, well similar to what we're doing right now. It's going on over the internet. I don't see you right now. You don't see me. There are you know right. thousands of webinars every day where I think presenters commit both of the errors that uh, <laughs> that you just referred to. They try to pack too much into them, and they can't see their audience, so they don't, it's hard for them to, to gauge. Um, I mean, how, how do you feel about the, the webinar as a, as a format in, in general? I'm not super familiar with webinars because I've only taken one uh, in, my, in my life. Um, what I know is that it's not a format that I really like, um, and uh, and I think that may be because there's so um, there's so much difficulty with connecting um, to what's going on because it feels very isolated. Um, and then there's the sort of other thing that webinars can be something you engage in with a lot of other distractions like emails, <laughs> sort of other things happening on your screen. Uh, that's always that's always sort of a, a an issue, I think. Um, so I have not liked webinars that I've that I've experienced. Um, I'm trying to think right now if I if I could think about how the format would be better. Well, one thing I was going to you know, ask you about, may, maybe this is a connecting point, maybe it's not. Uh, you can tell me, but I, I know a lot of your focus and your work is on storytelling, um, you know, telling and and hearing stories. Uh, and, and I know, you know, whenever I've been on a webinar and and it, and it has been engaging at some level, it's usually because the presenter is is very good at contextualizing things. Usually, is whether they're 
you know, out and out telling a story somehow makes it makes it feel more like I'm engaged in a narrative um, than that I'm just listening to facts being thrown at me uh, on screen. Um, I, I don't know how you feel about that perspective, uh, but uh, it'd be interesting to, to hear how you think about storytelling in the context of learning in, in general anyway. I, I mean, stories are, are great for learning in so many different ways. Um, certainly, if you can make what you want to convey in any public presentation into a story, um, it'll it'll fly so much better for for the audience. Um, I think we're really geared towards uh, learning from stories, and so when information is being presented in story form, it really works well for us. Um, I came across a very weird piece of evidence for this the other day. I was in parent-teacher conferences, and um, the teacher was explaining to me that my daughter's reading level was a bit up in the air because she was more advanced with fiction than with nonfiction, and this is apparently pretty typical. Um, and it's and it is, I think, partly this narrative structure, this beginning, middle, end, and the way that plots are structured makes it easier to re- to encode and recall information. Um, and when you get nonfiction texts, especially for first graders, they don't really have that kind of easy structure. They have other kinds of, of structures, and those are not as available to little kids. So I think making a story is engaging, it's motivating, it's also cognitively helpful because it makes things seem clearer. Um, you know, some, some presentations work well that with stories and others don't. And then there's a, a sort of third use of stories, which is an illustrative point in which you can't make the whole presentation into a story, but you really... Um, hit your kind of take-home messages with vivid examples. And I think that's another strategy that um, can help in a webinar. It can help. It can certainly help feeling like there's a real person and not a robot right. Right. <laughs> giving the information out. Um, and so I think those are at least three different ways that stories really help. Um, well, great. Um, well, I don't want to take up too much of your time today, uh, but I thought before we wrap up the conversation, I'd ask you, you know, when you when you look at things that are happening in in the world of of learning, what are some things that you just find really exciting uh, right now that you're just really looking forward to seeing how they evolve over the over the coming years? Well, I really like. Um, I think there's been several kind of developments in in sort of lifelong learning that I'm aware of, and I mean, you certainly will know a lot more of these than me. Um, and I've been really excited by them. The ones that I'm most familiar with, I mean, the teaching company has been around for quite a while, um, but there's also Osher Lifelong Learning Institute. Um, and I know in Utah, we just passed a bill giving um, people over a certain age kind of very low cost access to uh, university courses for uh, non-credit purposes. And, and I like, uh, there's a few things I like about that. I think one, one thing I like about it is that uh, my training, my original background was in adult development and aging. And, you know, we were talking about this expanded lifespan and this sort of, you know, people retiring at 65 looking at 20 additional years. Um, and one of the things that sociologists have been talking about in that field was something like structural lag. You know, you have this group of people and we don't have institutional structures for them to be part of. Um, so what we've seen is an explosion in volunteerism among seniors. Um, and I think an opening up of lifelong learning opportunities that's really pretty cool because these are not people who are kind of ready to 
um, go gently into that good night. These are sort of people who still are pretty vital, active people. Um, so I, I've really found that exciting. And the other thing I like about it is the acknowledgement that learning might be something people would want to do just for its own sake. Um, and we have a fairly long-standing anti-intellectual tradition within this country, so it's very nice, um, you know, in which degrees need to be training people for jobs and in a sort of relatively narrow way of understanding that. And so I like to see the development of, of this kind of alternative perspective where people are just going to a class because they just want to know something and that's acceptable, it's available. Um, I kind of like to see, um, and I don't know as much about the sort of broader, the teaching company, of course, is available to anyone that purchases their classes. The, um, the locally here in Utah, we also have something called the Questioning Minds Forum, which is a nonprofit that does a lot of intellectual talks and explorations for the community. That's also age open. Um, you know, I think it could be a kind of exciting time in terms of all the opportunities available. Yeah, I, I definitely uh, think so. I mean, it's one of the. Um, uh, I'm sure the baby boomers are not happy that they're getting uh, older, but uh, it's certainly, I think that this is one of the positive impacts of uh, a group that has been so engaged, you know, throughout their their lives. Uh, now moving into retirement and and saying, you know, there there are other vistas I want to explore uh, as, as I do this. Well, great. Well, yeah, I just oh, go ahead. Oh, I was just gonna, I was just going to say that for, you know for me being in the time of life where I'm squeezed by family demands and work demands, it's also kind of nice to sort of think that in fifteen twenty years right. <laughs> I will get to go back to literature, finally understand certain aspects of history that I just mm-hmm. kind of you know avoided when I was in school that I'll that I'll get to play catch up and get to sort of do some exploration. I can tell you that the, the teaching company has a great music appreciation course that, I, that I've also been enjoying. So you can. Uh, I, I have heard about that course. From, <laughs> I cannot tell you how many people. <laughs> yeah, I think uh, it's, uh, he, he's a, he's a fa- I can't remember the, the professor's name right off the top of my head, but he's definitely somebody who can make a lecture interesting. <laughs> um, well, Manisha, thank you so much. I, I really appreciate your taking the time to uh, talk more about this and. Um, you know, excited to to see any anything else you do, whether it's um formally in the world of uh, uh, lifelong learning or just your continuing work in in the field of psychology. So thanks so much. So that wraps up the interview with Dr. Monisha Pashupathy. Just wanted to remind you again that learning technology design is coming up on May 18th and 19th in Arlington, Virginia. So if you haven't had a chance yet, I encourage you to take a look at ltd.leadinglearning.com. Also want to again thank Meridian Knowledge Solutions for being a sponsor. You can find out more about Meridian at meridianks.com. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 31. While you're there, you'll see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of the podcast, we really would be grateful if you would take time to subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. And to do that, you can go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. We very much appreciate that. It makes it easier for others to find the podcast. And finally, consider telling other people about the podcast yourselves. You can go and send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, you can use uh, the text that's provided at that link and share it on your social network of preference. So thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Yeah.